Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing fine, Kevin. You? I'm doing great. Today on the podcast, we'll discuss the latest news and notes from the Maryland General Assembly, and we'll talk about some interesting poll numbers. And Michael, let's jump right in. Nancy Kopp. We've been talking about Nancy Kopp for the past two weeks. Of course, this is Maryland's treasurer. There was some question about whether or not she'd be reelected. This week, she was reelected in a joint session of the Maryland General Assembly. Right. We saw that coming when the legislature put together a panel to interview candidates. They had a few formal applications and so forth. And then the, the overwhelming share of the legislators on that panel recommended her for reappointment or reelection to the, to the job. So that looked like that was likely to happen. Um, they go through the formal process. She gets sworn in and so forth for, for another term to serve as treasurer amidst lots of people talking about she's, you know, she does an excellent job with all the stewards duties and the actual financial management components of the role of treasurer and so forth. So lots of kudos and plaudits, even though this this process was a little, you know, a little maybe trickier than than four or eight or 12 years ago for her. Yeah, this is her fifth full term. And the process was tricky because I think of maybe the Board of Public Works, which is, right. you know, high profile and the governor, the comptroller and the treasurer there. And Obviously, there have been some fireworks at the Board of Public Works, so that kind of you know threw a wrench into things a little bit. Right. There were also some sort of interesting contours revealed by the votes that she didn't get. This wasn't a unanimous vote by the General Assembly, and I mean we're we're used to seeing from time to time there might be the minority party will put in some votes for either one of their members or somebody else who's in the party who's got some fiscal chops that that sort of thing. So we've seen that before, mm-hmm. and there was a little. A little bit of that, I think, you know, Senator Serafini, who's sort of a a, a fiscal maven type um, in, in the in the Senate, he got a handful of votes. Uh, also in the House, you know, Delegate Brooks uh, gets a handful, more than a handful, right. you know, a couple, twenty-four, couple, you know, a couple dozen votes, and and that's maybe you know maybe some folks saying that the lack of diversity on the Board of Public Works or in high leadership within within the state, you know, high-ranking officials and so forth. There's there's something that you know it's kind of a shot over the bow, right? Right, and so we also saw some other interesting write-ins. The Majority Whip Talmadge Branch got a handful of votes. Delegate Sharif sample Hughes. And then it gets really interesting, Michael. Ben Jealous received a vote. Right. Uh, Marce Morales, she's a former delegate. Mm-hmm. She got some votes. Alexandra Hughes, chief of staff <laughs> right. uh, to Mike Bush, Mike the speaker. Bush. Right? Someone, someone's buttering the bread correctly here. Sure, sure. <laughs> and then Harriet Tubman received a couple votes, right. which is interesting. We talked about Harriet Tubman a few weeks back, I think. Her <laughs> right. name was brought up on the floor. But, you know, she got a few votes here. Interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, if, if she puts a little more shoulder into it next go around, she might be a serious candidate. Yeah, I mean, that. very, uh, very interesting. She pulls she, very, very well. I I'm think just so. saying, but we, think Marylanders so. are very, very proud of her. So I'm, I'm very saying. proud of her. So <laughs> she does pull well. She does pull well. So th- that was interesting. It's a little tidbits there. But 
nevertheless, Nancy Kopp has been reelected, and she will serve her fifth full term as treasurer. Right, and we're, we're looking to have her. She's going to come visit MAKO, one of our legislative committee meetings later this session, and that's that's always a good exchange. So that's good. Yeah, very good. So, Michael, also this week, we saw that the Joint Committee on Legal Cannabis was formed <laughs> by the Maryland General Assembly. You know, is that a pun intended? I or? think. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, so they've set the roster, and what that means, I think, is that we're not likely to see anything this year regarding legalization of cannabis. We're not going to see a bill, but this committee will meet and they will issue a report. And I think next year we'll see some action. And I think that's what we've been predicting. And what does that mean for cannabis? I, I think the what this almost certainly suggests is that with this a process that's going to take more than this session and into next year, that's that's the writing has to be on the wall that this will be on the ballot. Right. So so it's not it's not necessarily the case that changing state laws on a substance has to be a constitutional amendment or a ballot question, but it looks like that's the direction Maryland wants to go. I mean, the, you know, the powers that be, so let's form a committee and let's look at this as a two-year plan. Mm-hmm. The earliest you could put something on the ballot is next fall anyway. So I, I think that that certainly seems the way the arrow is pointed, that this will be a two-year process. They'll probably recommend some sort of a structure, and it'll be on the ballot for next fall. Right, and no coincidence here that it seems they'll be talking about legalizing cannabis at the same time they'll be talking about school funding, obviously the, the Kerwin Commission. That's right. going to be a big deal. So no coincidence there, but putting it on the ballot is nothing new. We've seen most states go that way. Yeah, that's, why do you mm-hmm. think that is? I mean, is that just to give some cover to, to the senators and delegates and say, hey, if you all want to do this, vote for it, and we'll let the, the, the residents decide? I think that's pretty much the, the easiest easiest uh, explanation is that this is – it's an issue that's sensitive with a lot of communities. So, okay, you know, you, you, you put it before the voters, let them have the final say. It tends to pass. I mean, even even in states that are that are um, maybe not the the first candidates who come to mind. I mean, it's passing on state ballots, mm-hmm. and this is the sort of thing that you know, we're going to talk about some polling stuff in Maryland. But you know, nationwide, this is a subject that tends to have support in both parties uh, and in most uh, age groups and so forth. I mean, there's there are skews here and there, but uh, so the likelihood is you put this on the ballot particularly if there's a flavor of this is a way to make some big gains on education and find the money to do that. I think, you know, that's the, the, the arrows pointed that way, I think. Makes sense for sure. And other big news, Michael, this week, we saw some fireworks regarding the Preakness and a plan to make a quote unquote super track in Laurel and move the Preakness from Baltimore to Laurel. And these, of course, are the owners of the Pimlico race course. And they're urging that construction of a super track. And they're actually pushing for legislation that would permit funding for gambling proceeds to go toward the construction of that quote unquote super track and then also a training center at the former Bowie racetrack. And right. obviously that's not sitting well with the city. Right. So I mean this is we're following up on a topic that we talked about in either in December or January as sort of a legislative preview and issues we thought would be coming up this year. So a discussion about the Preakness and about Pimlico race course in Baltimore. Right. Uh, also, you know, in theory is about a conversation about the racing industry in Maryland. We know there's lots of breeders within the state and there's a lot of land and energy committed to to the horse racing industry. So this whole thing is a big complicated issue, but the regional element between Baltimore and outside of Baltimore 
has really deep symbolism as well as economic consequences. Sure, so, right. I mean, you know, Mayor Pugh speaking about the importance of keeping keeping the race itself, the Preakness race. This is the you know the middle jewel of the Triple Crown. It's one of the one of the highest profile events in the sport, and. I, I mean, there is a legitimate argument that if if suddenly that's no longer going to be at this particular track, if it's not going to be at Pimlico in Baltimore, then is this just a free for all? Do you end up moving it to? I mean, there's probably some people would like to say let's move to Florida sure. or or you know Pennsylvania or New Jersey or New York. There's other you know all sorts of places might try to lay claim to where you could hold a race in the middle of the month of May. Right. And so we've seen the stadium authority, you know, they've proposed a multi-use development at Pimlico, which would include, of course, a racetrack, but also entertainment options, shops and homes at a price tag of about $400 million. And the owners of Pimlico are saying, hey, we're, we're open to keeping it in Baltimore, but we'd want the taxpayers to, to fund these efforts. So Sort of a back and forth. The mayor, of course, did not mince her words when she wrote a letter to the governor and the General Assembly uh, asking them to reject this proposal. And she said that they will leave Pimlico, quote, a fenced in vacant lot with failing structures. And so she's basically saying, if you let them get out of here, they're just going to leave this behind. It's going to be dilapidated and we're going to be stuck with this vacant lot and nothing to do with it. Well, I mean, you can see. You can see from here to what the area in and around Pimlico could look like. If you made a big investment in the track itself, but the things around it and so forth and made it back into sort of a showcase venue, part of the thinking would be you could have an economic revitalization of a whole area of the city that could really benefit from that. So that's, that's what the mayor is thinking, and I think that's what local leaders are thinking. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is a high-end political conversation for the state and for the big regions of the state. So, you know, it's going it's to gather a lot of conversation. It is gathering conversation, and that's going to continue through this session as legislators, lawmakers look to work this out and figure out exactly what should happen here. We'll keep you updated. And then, Michael, uh, we're also hearing about, you know, we've heard Governor Hogan mixed up with a new stadium proposal in Maryland. And this was big news a few weeks ago. What's the status now of a new stadium for the Washington Redskins potentially being located in Maryland near National Harbor? So this was part two of what we talked about as we thought these were interesting topics brewing. And um, so this has taken a turn. Uh, The governor at one point was looking at some federal owned federally owned parkland in the Oxen Cove area, which is down near the National Harbor. So it's in Prince George's County, but it's it's a location which if you repurposed the area, it could have been a location for a stadium or a big facility like that. And I think the governor at one point was saying that was his vision was to let's get into the bidding for a potential new venue and here would be a place for it. So for a while back in January, the governor was speaking about this favorably. Um, As of the last week or so, he seems to have cooled on the idea. I think he's now dialed down to indifference. He said a couple things on the newspaper basically saying if they want to stay here and they want to be physically located and have their, you know, have their, their, the games in the state of Maryland, we'd probably work with them. But this sounded a whole lot less. 
of a, you know, big enticement and we're going to do a lot of stuff. Um, they do have some other ideas maybe for that parkland area. So they've got an in- interesting idea that's still on the table of doing so, a, sort of a land swap with the federal government. Mm-hmm. The feds are interested in some area in over toward Western Maryland that might become like preserved battlefield sites and monuments and things of that nature. And right now, a lot of that area is state owned. So in theory, the federal owned area in Prince George's County could be some sort of a swap for the state owned area in Western Maryland as a way to work something out with the feds. And then Maryland either does, you know, even either this turns into a stadium effort or it's a plot for some other economic development sort of site that would, you know, be alongside and, and, you know, maybe augment what's already happening around the National Harbor area. Yeah. And of course, this whole conversation stems from the fact that the Redskins do need a new stadium. And there have been, you know, a lot of concerns that they'll move to Virginia. That's where their training facility is in Virginia. DC is interested in bringing them back to DC. Mm -hmm. And I know, of course, folks would like to see them stay here, but I think the governor, as you said, has backed off uh, the proposal to to help and maybe subsidize a new stadium here in Maryland. Right. So when you get the word subsidize, I mean, that's what this conversation starts looking like. And it's a little bit like the Amazon, you know, the whole, you know, every, all these different cities and states and so forth offering these gigantic incentives for Amazon. We've seen that go sideways in, in, in Long Island City. So that's that's interesting on its on its own, but then you know in the middle of this conversation about the, the the football team wanting a new facility, then you have their principal owner decides to go out and you know find find a, a hundred million dollar super yacht with what's well, like a it's like IMAX yeah, movie the theater first super yacht to have an IMAX right theater. and 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 so suddenly it's the idea of hey we want taxpayers to pony up a whole lot of help so that you can build a new stadium here rather than there and and you know this guy's you know on the waving from the deck of his super yacht and you know, got his popcorn ready and National stuff Harbor, maybe. Right, right. It's, i mean it's the the optics of that are tricky and if if nothing if you don't believe anything else about governor hogan he has good instincts for the kinds of things that are going to sell and not. Yeah, and let's be clear, <laughs> Daniel Snyder is not a very well-liked guy in general, I don't think. Right. Not just because the football team has been terrible, but also because I think he's he's a bit terse, and uh, I, I think people just don't see him as a people's owner, if you will. Right. 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 So that is a polite way to put it. Okay. I, okay. We'll go with that. Right. So, so, so the, the, the football team may have an argument for our location. Um, the owner may have done his, <laughs> himself a disservice by doing some very conspicuous consumption as this conversation is just brewing. Yeah, so. Not the best timing. <laughs> but I'm sure it's a nice boat. Oh, I'd, I'd like to, I don't, don't get me wrong. I'd like to, uh, to go aboard that yacht and sail it around and watch some movies. And I think they have all kinds of sports fields, whatever. I don't know, but maybe in, maybe in a different life, maybe when we start making millions on the podcast, right, yeah, we'll the, the podcast money's coming. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll be in Guam on the yacht. It's going to be great. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and take a break on that note. When we come back, we'll talk about some interesting floor conversation yesterday in the Senate. We'll also talk about Goucher poll numbers. We alluded to this last week. We have some very interesting numbers now. All that and more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's get into some interesting discussions on the floor of the Senate yesterday. Every so often, or usually, I mean, every day for us, we're listening to the floor of the House and the Senate. We're, you know, we're right. tracking bills or we're waiting for announcements of when committees are going to meet and subcommittees and whatnot. And every so often we get to hear someone stand up and use a term, a parliamentary term called personal privilege, Michael. And right. Let's talk about personal privilege, what that means and, and you know, what happened yesterday. So, so typically it can be a little off-putting following a deliberative body that's following like parliamentary procedures. And what that typically means is there's a particular question on the floor. You know, the question is, shall the bill pass? And sometimes you'll hear terminology like you move the previous question or you offer amendments and there's subordinate motions and all these other technical things. But parliamentary procedure is a set of rules that everybody plays by so that the minority gets heard and everybody gets their say in an orderly fashion. You dispense of the work you have to get through and so forth. The the idea of someone asking for a, 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 a moment of personal privilege is basically, can we take a break from the structured conversation because there's something? And it can be like there's a draft in the room. Can someone close the window? That, 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 that's the kind of thing that you stand up and say, can I have a moment of personal privilege? I want to introduce a guest or, mm-hmm. you know, it's chilly, right? These, these kind of things, that's what personal privilege can be. Mundane. Right, 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 right. yeah. But sometimes it, it just ends up being – you know, I got some stuff to say, and now seems like a good time. And yesterday was the day, yeah. you know, perhaps one of the most interesting personal privileges I've ever seen, the use of a personal right. privilege or heard. Right. So right. so listening to the floor of the Senate, and the Senate sort of prides itself as being the, the body that is deeply respectful and, and sort of honors its history and sees its place as being, you know, being sort of – you know, the, a, a place for this sort of collegiality and, and so forth. It's a smaller body. It's a little more personal than the House of Delegates. There's a variety of arguments you can make about it. Part of that is because the, the president of the Senate has been in that spot for such a long time. He really values the customs and traditions of the Senate. So it's the place where senators can stand up and talk. And at a moment where the president was not actually presiding, the president pro tem, Senator Klausmeyer, was presiding – uh, it was Mike Miller himself who took the personal privilege angle. Senator Miller. And, you know, the, it, this was as the session was wrapping up. It was almost yeah, done. Kind of a short session. Right, and there was right. a, you know, a relatively slow day. I mean, they had been uh, it was less than an hour on the floor, as I recall. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not, not, a, not a whole lot of whole lot going on that day. They had one amendment where there was a little bit of back and forth. And you could tell it was a an amendment offered in good faith. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes these things are really contentious. This wasn't particularly contentious, but it just seemed to, to suggest to the Senate president that it was time for him to exert a little leadership and give some perspective. And for, you know, a first year Senator to be sitting in there and seeing Senator Miller stand up and sort of talk about the way he sees things and some history and then what he thinks is important and what, the body needs to do moving forward, I'm sure, you know, you're awestruck. You could certainly hear a pin drop oh, yeah. in the Senate when he stood up. Right. And I mean, it started with the notion of, he was, it was sort of explaining 
here's why I voted against the amendment. I want to defer to the committee process and that's how the Senate works best. And I mean, and that, I think, I think that was well received. He's like, I I don't think this is a terrible idea, but the, the committee considered it. And I heard their argument for why they didn't want to do this thing that was in the amendment. And, and so that could have been the end of his conversation, but he ended up saying, you know, while I've got the microphone, let me tell you a little bit about how these things work. Right. And when Mike Miller starts telling stories, I mean, some of them are going to be in the 1970s. They're awesome. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, so he, he ended up holding court on the floor of the Senate and his conversation started with, the, the process of things getting to the floor and the way you should have debates. And he was being you know complimentary for, for about this amendment and about the way the committee dealt with it. But then it sort of drifted into the kinds of issues you deal with as an elected official. And this was like a little history lesson and a little primer for new senators and for people who are listening, the people who are in the audience and so forth. I mean, he got into – a number of different topics. Uh, he was talking about interest groups who come to Annapolis to to aggressively make their argument, right, uh, right. and you know, he was he was sort of saying, "We know there's a big group of teachers. They've they've announced they've got a day coming," and he was he was sort of suggesting the teachers in some other states have had strikes but they've had these big events where they go to the state capitol and they sort of you know occupy the state house shut down and, the city right yeah that, that sort of that sort of thing and he was trying to suggest you know if 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 the senate of maryland were a place that was working against your interests then maybe that would make sense but please don't get that sense right. we're, you know what the teachers are talking about and what they value is something that he shares and he believes the senate shares i mean he all but said he expects the senate is going to pass the Kerwin bill which you know embodies sort of the, the issue of the moment for for the teachers community mm-hmm. So he, he got into a little bit of that for a few moments, um, then sort of took an interesting turn and spent a few minutes getting into some details on a totally separate issue. Right. And we've heard him talk about this issue before, but not in this much depth. And we're talking about historically black colleges and universities. And Michael, this is an issue that has been brewing over the past few years. And essentially, you know, Senator Miller basically urged the body, urged the governor to come up with a resolution to a lawsuit that was filed against Maryland over the state's treatment of these schools before the issue reaches the Supreme Court. Right. And so so this is this is taking the personal privilege. This is not a question on the floor. There's not a bill that's pending before the Senate at the moment that's about these schools. He was just saying, while I'm here and I'm kind of on a roll, so let's talk about this. And he was, he, you're exactly right. He, he's calling on his colleagues in the Senate. He's calling on the governor to find a way to, to, to make a deal. And, to some degree, it's it's kind of curious. I mean, this is the lion of the Senate. He's as establishment as it gets. Right. And he's basically saying, we need to think differently. We need to be outside the box on this and come up with some way. It may not be a matter of cash. I mean, the, 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 the governor's proposed, let's make a multi-year commitment. Let's find $100 bucks over 10 years and, and move that towards the, the HBCUs as a way to assist them generally. The president was speaking about, you know, we may be able to do other things that could transform some of these campuses. Right. And and a little bit of the history here. I mean, 
So Morgan State, Coppin State, Bowie State, and the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, which is in Princess Anne, accused the state of allowing well-funded programs at historically white universities to undermine similar programs at the HBCUs. And this lawsuit was filed 12 years ago. The courts ruled in 2013 that the state's action perpetuated segregation. And a federal court has ordered mediation to work toward remedies, and they have set a date uh, a deadline of April 30th. And as you mentioned, the governor has offered some uh, some funding to sort of try and make up for this issue. But Senator Miller had some different ideas. He went into some specifics about right. what the state could do to, to remedy this issue. Right. I mean, the easy the easy thing is for him to just say, this is really important. Let's get it worked out. Right. No. But instead, he starts ticking off his ideas for how you might be able to do that. And he was saying, you know, maybe, you know, Bowie, Bowie State should be a place where we have a law school. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, right now there is the, you know, right now none of those schools have a law program. Right, right. So maybe that's the place to launch a law school, mm-hmm. um, which I haven't heard. I haven't heard that specific um, argument be that, you know, that, that visible. Right. right. But right. then, you know, he, he goes on to say, you know, we know Morgan in Baltimore needs extra land. The state could be a partner in expanding just their physical campus. Mm-hmm. That's a different thing than saying here's here's some operating cash, you know, to help you with your bottom line or to help you with scholarship programs or something like that. Um, you know, he was he was saying UMES, you know, look at what they've been able to do with with a, a program for physical therapists, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's be- so that's become a regional success. He's like, let's build on that. Let's let's try and find another program that we can launch there and have that be sort of like it's like a magnet school concept. So, mm-hmm. and these are the kind of things that that might substantively reverse the sense that the 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 HBCUs are having their toes stepped on by other institutions. Right, right. And so, I mean, I guess the bottom line is he has thought about this in some depth. He's talked with some folks yeah, about no what fooling. could be done here, right. but for him to stand up and you know detail, you know, his sort of plan of how to make this right, I thought was just fascinating. And he was, you know, he was standing for at least 10 minutes, I think, you know, taking that personal privilege and going through what he thinks is important as the state moves forward. So if you're into Maryland politics, and and, I mean, if you've made it this far into this episode of our podcast, you probably are, we'll link, you know, we'll link to the audio for, for that day. This was this was uh, February 21st on the floor of the Maryland Senate at the end of the day. Uh, we'll link to the audio, uh, but it's it's worth 10 minutes of your time to listen and hear, you know, hear the line roar a little bit. Yeah, we'll certainly link it up and definitely take the time to listen. I promise you won't be disappointed. All right, Michael, we teased last week that we were going to get some really interesting poll numbers from the Goucher poll, highly, highly respected, uh, in my opinion, the best poll in Maryland. And the, the the poll that we had last week was everything about Old Bay. Okay, no surprise there. Marylanders love Old Bay. But we got into some interesting numbers this week. And let's go through these a bit, Michael. Let's start with Governor Hogan. He has always held a high approval rating here in Maryland. Not much has changed. He has a 69% approval rating. 14% disapprove and 14% sadly don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. that's I mean that's a head scratcher a little bit but okay that, that that's fine. But I mean he's been hovering around 7 out of 10 Marylanders say yes. 
um, that yeah that for for a while there was this sort of unknown as to whether that would translate to success at the ballot box for re-election. Mm-hmm. It turns out he won re-election relatively easily. I mean, I don't know. I mean, how many how many Maryland figures poll better than than seventy percent? Maybe Harriet Tubman. That might be the whole list, right? Right. right. That's I mean, true. I mean, in modern politics, seventy percent approval rating is like the super high strategy. Sure. Just no one gets there. So he's right there with maybe a couple other governors in the entire country mm-hmm. um, as most popular political figures among, you know, the areas, you know, the areas who elected them. So that's, you know, that's no surprise that he checks in at a big high number once again. Right. And so there has been a lot of speculation about what the governor will do. He's term limited obviously and, you know, the Goucher poll asked a question about would Marylanders want the governor to run for president in 2020? The answer there, only about a third of those surveys thought that Hogan should run for president. 55% said he should not. And Michael, you know, the speculation we've seen national interviews from the governor, there's speculation Mm -hmm. that he might go up to politics and eggs in New Hampshire, which is sort of, you know, a stomping ground. If you're going to run, you're going to hit that event. So what do you think the significance here is of Marylanders saying, yeah, we really don't think you should run for president, but we like you as a governor. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the more interesting numbers in this in this slate, I don't think there was anything that surprised me as much as this did because I, I thought the number might have been higher. Mm-hmm. It actually was pretty much the same in both parties mm-hmm. too. It mm-hmm. wasn't. It wasn't like uh, you know Democrats feel one way and Republicans feel another way. It was sort of like to, you know you know a majority saying no, he shouldn't do that. I mean, maybe one view is. Uh, you know, hey, we like him as our governor. We think he's in a good groove here. And so, you know, we wouldn't want to lose him to have him run for president and start getting focused on foreign affairs, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, that's one point of view, I guess. Sure. Um, I mean, the other thing that's lying in the background is to to challenge an incumbent president seeking a second term. To try and primary is, that president. Right. I mean, yeah, is is almost – impossible i mean even what even whatever your whatever your thoughts are about the current president and where he fits in the political spectrum and particular things that he's done here or there i mean governor hogan has has departed with president trump on a number of of high profile issues i think governor hogan was the first one to come out when president trump first started to run and said i'm not going to support this guy and he sort of you know stuck his stake in the ground there right. and he hasn't wavered since. voted for his dad for president right, as right, i recall right. so he did. <laughs> Um, so, you know, the speculation that he could run and that he would be an intriguing and viable candidate is absolutely inevitable. Mm-hmm. The guy's super popular. He's awfully likable. He's carved out areas where he differs from President Trump. And so it's natural for people to be thinking about this. It's a great question to be on the poll. And the return is puzzling. Sure. Um, so, you know, whether whether it's a matter of what he might be in for. And we know the character and the the campaign style of President Trump. And so you know, maybe part of it is I don't want to see this guy get covered in mud, right. which is probably what would happen to anybody who runs in a primary against President Trump. Right. And for, you know, Larry Hogan has said, look, I'm not interested in that now. I'm focused on Maryland. I'm, I'm keeping the door open. But I'll listen, but I'm not, I'm not going to commit to anything. Yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't slammed the door right, shut, right. which some, you know, sometimes can, you know, would be candidates say, just stop asking. I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. He hasn't said that, but, but oh boy, I mean, you said, you, you were saying, you know, there, there's apparently in negotiations for him to pick a date and go up to this event at the college in, in New Hampshire. If he does that and he gets up on stage and, you know, eats the eggs and talks the talk, um, 
boy, oh boy, will that, you know, this, this, this conversation will burst into flames. We'll and have, we'll have a, lots a national media circus right. yeah, in Annapolis. So, right, yeah, you know, so that's okay. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, you know. <laughs> Parking's already bad down here. We had, you know, we had a Maryland governor running for president not long ago. It, that's it true. had its own thing. So. That's true. Okay. So we'll see what happens there. Obviously interesting, but I thought that poll number was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to the General Assembly, Michael. 41% of Marylanders approve of the job the General Assembly is doing. 30% disapprove and 26% don't know. Again, sad but true. Yeah. So so a larger window of people don't have a good sense of what the state legislature is up to and whether they approve of it. That's too bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're on the plus side. 41% sounds like a rotten number, but it's 41 to 30 among people who have an opinion. Is that is that like voter registration? Is that blue and red stuff? The legislature is basically seen as the Democratic institution. So is that your opinion of the Democratic Party in general? It might be. Right. Um, or it may be that you know issues that that make the headlines coming from the legislature of late have been relatively well received i mean the idea of sick leave for employees uh, even if the employer, you know, hasn't been granting it before, but like saying we're going to guarantee that, that's the sort of thing that polls pretty well. Right. So, so, you know, I mean, since we're talking about polls, uh, the idea of the legislature getting some high profile gains in areas that, that, that uh, a lot of voters are supportive of, it, it makes sense that they're in the plus, I guess. Yeah. Let's get into some of that. So I think it's interesting too. Uh, you know, Marylanders were asked what is most important to them, and 21% identified economic issues such as jobs, taxes, the budget as their most important issue. 16% education is their most important issue. 12% issues involving crime are most important. I thought that education number would be a little bit higher, Michael, based on some of the recent polls that I've seen. Yeah, it's um, it's intriguing, and uh, that that's one where um, Goucher does a really good job of revealing exactly how their survey instrument is, is constructed, and this is one where a pretty wide-open question – leads to nothing dominating. Right. If you if you give people four choices, then suddenly one thing might run away with it. Uh, here, a, a, a long list or a wide open question ends up with, you know, 20, 20% say this, 15% say that. Okay, let's, uh, you know, that's the nature of this kind of question. Yeah, kind I of think. on the spot. Right. And I, I mean, I, I might join you in being a little surprised that education didn't rate as, you know, didn't, didn't lead the pack. But economic issues writ large i mean they tend to if if that's on your mind that's the thing on your mind if you're worried if you don't have a job or or your son can't get a job then you're thinking about the economy and that tends to that tends to dominate this kind of question at every level of politics sure and maybe you know you could think maybe the government shutdown played a role there that's possible right we had all that going on but anyway it was interesting Speaking of President Trump, 30% of Marylanders approve of the job that he's doing, while 66% disapprove. I don't think much is needed there. Congress, though, Michael, and this is a national trend, I think, Congress in Maryland has a 19% approval rating. Right, which which is, I'm okay, so 19% think Congress is doing a fine job. That's probably a higher number than, I mean, that's higher than the say, national. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they pull, you know, right, right down there with like, <laughs> with like, you know, patent trolls and <laughs> child Russian molesters, bots, right? Exactly. Right. Right. So it's just, you know, it's, it's just, 
there's you know there's the the ever popular joke that everybody thinks Congress is rotten and the overwhelming share of people continue to vote in their congressional representative. They like so their person. My rep, oh yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. She's <laughs> but, doing but, everything she yeah, can. She's doing everything she can, but that, that, the lot of mm-hmm. them, they're terrible. They're awful. So, right. so somehow, you know, I mean, even in a big turnover election like this last one was, you still had, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but you know, I mean, a sizable majority still get reelected mostly mm-hmm. comfortably. So, you know, that's, it, it's just a perpetual, uh, little par- you know, a little, little, a little you know, paradox in the, in, in the way people feel about that political institution. Yeah, not, not a lot of love. <laughs> so I thought some of the most interesting numbers, Michael, were about issues that the General Assembly is dealing with currently. And so let's talk about the minimum wage. Or, yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, 67% of Marylanders support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, 30% opposed. So, yeah, I mean, a two to one split there. Um, again, is it is it possible that some of these questions just kind of turn into blue and red proxies? I mean, I mean, a number of these issues are things that are on the legislative agenda, basically being touted by advocates from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of these numbers, it ends up being well over fifty, sixty you know, some percent support A, B, C, D, E. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't mean I don't, I don't think this is a flaw of polling, but I wonder if that's part of what's going on. You ask a series of questions, do you agree with these multiple things, and they end up being you know, okay, like. Most blues say yes to these questions and many reds say no. Right. And you end up with like a 60-30 split on most of these questions. So minimum wage, um, it polls well in Maryland. It polls well in lots of blue states. Uh, you know, we've been, we've been talking here. We think Maryland is likely to have that bill passed. The big, big hearing in the Senate uh, just yesterday went on for hours and hours, but yeah, I think the smart money is we're going to see a bill move as soon as next week, probably. Yes, I would agree. We'll see what kind of carve-outs are there. I don't think it's going to be a clean 15, but we'll have to wait and see. Very close to 67% for a minimum wage. 66% raise, support raising the minimum wage uh, for the sale of cigarettes and other tobacco products. 31% opposed. That's almost identical here. So right. that kind of goes along with your theory. Yeah, I guess I, I guess so. And, I mean, that looks like it's on track to pass here, too, to change the, the buying age for tobacco to 21. Um, interesting. Uh, you know, interesting that there's also I've, – I've lost track of how many states have done this, but it's eight or ten states mm-hmm. that, that have, have, have passed this. So, I mean, it's a – you know, there's there's some health arguments there, and it, it, I think that's probably going to pass here, too. And, right. And the fact, the fact that it polls, you know, well over 50 percent probably, you know, probably seals the deal, I think. I would think. And, you know, earlier we mentioned that if you put cannabis – legalizing cannabis on the ballot, it would be very likely to pass – that that adds up here. Fifty seven percent support legalizing the recreational use of marijuana. Thirty seven percent oppose it. And this is adult use cannabis, Michael, I mm-hmm. think is what we're talking about. Right. So but that the question number, I have, <laughs> is that going to be for 21 year olds or 18 year olds? If you raise the tobacco age, right. mm. I guess 21. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So 57 percent there, though, a high number. Yeah. Um, and like that's that's one that has obviously changed a ton over the mm-hmm. last decade or so. If if that question had been on a similar poll 10 years ago, I don't know that it would have pulled 50. No. And and now it's 57. And it's yeah, I you know, that the split there is not a pure partisan split split that 
that one tends to be a generational split. Right. So, you know, there's the folks who remember, uh, you know, reefer madness and so forth from, from decades ago have a different view of marijuana as a substance than people who are 40 and under. Sure. And then another interesting issue, actually, this bill just was voted out of uh, the Senate Environmental Health uh, committee, and this is the ban on styrofoam products. This is food containers, plates, cups. Sixty-three percent support a statewide ban. Thirty-one percent oppose. So mm-hmm. another one here where yeah, it seems like split. you know maybe the the Democrats ran the numbers when they when mm-hmm. they looked at their priorities, and mm-hmm. and this one again is popular in Maryland. Right, and that's that one probably maps out as mostly a blue red issue, and the votes the votes in the legislature are going to shake out largely that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we we saw Anne Arundel County. Did a local ban. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would be surprised if they're the last jurisdiction to do something locally. But if this, you know, if this is common statewide, you'll have to align the language in the state law and, and and so forth. But this is, you know, this is catching on too. Sure, and this is catching on not only here in Maryland but in other states and DC. And then the last one, Michael, this is another hearing that went on for hours and hours and hours last Friday. Very controversial issue. I saw a lot of folks yesterday in the Senate lobbying senators actively about this bill, and this is the aid and dying bill, uh, 62% of Marylanders support that proposal, 31% oppose it. All right. So this is one where the split is different. Um, it probably does have a blue and red tinge, but I think there's more people of different faiths and, sure. and different, you know, different backgrounds in that respect have different feelings about the subject. And this is one where you will end up with people who are absolutely non-negotiable. I mean, you know, you know what tends to happen on tax issues and other you know, other things like that. So I just don't like this idea. But you know, man, this amendment might might get me to feel a little bit better about it. Well, yeah, we'll do a scholarship program, make it a little easier. Oh, that's that's okay, fine. All right, I can I can live, with, I can, I can live with that. Okay, you can work with me. I mean, this is one where you'll have heels dug in on both sides. Um, the you know the the it's very passionate, very personal, and like you said, the, the hearings have gone on and on and on, and lots of people. Like you don't need to be a credentialed expert. You don't need to be an economist or a physician or an engineer. Who, who they sometimes come to the table and say, I have these credentials and that's why I can talk to you about this bill. Right. This one, you just say, I'm a human being and this is what I think. Very emotional. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, so those are interesting numbers from Goucher. Thank you again to the Goucher poll. They always do a great job. We'll have to wait a little while until we see the next round of polling. But, Michael, it seems like uh, Marylanders, everything going on in the General Assembly, everything being pushed, it seems like Marylanders are, are in favor of these proposals. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. You look at polls, and then it sort of raises the question of what's your job? Is your job to put the finger in the breeze and decide which way the wind is blowing and then go that way? Or is it your job to make judgments on behalf of your citizens? Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a time-honored tension as a public servant. And, you know, from, from time to time, there will be people who stand up and say, I know this is unpopular, but it's what I think is right, and that's why I'm voting this way. It's supposed to be part of the process. So this isn't just a matter of, you know, we do a plebiscite, and then whatever the polls say, that's what we're going to do. Uh, but it certainly doesn't hurt your case when the polls come back and say a whole bunch of Marylanders like the idea that I'm for. Yeah, so, they're with you, yeah. right? 
Okay. So on that note, Michael, we're going to end it there. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Just I was taking a look at, um, we, they mentioned the, the Senate just got to a thousand bills introduced for this year and we're not even done. No. The, the daily synopses of bills being introduced are still coming in. There's still in. five or six bills every day. So there's still stuff coming. Uh, the house is already up to 1400. I think the smart money is they'll probably get to, 1600 1700 bills are thereabouts. So I, I I just did a little bit of digging. I've been doing this for a pretty long time, but you go back 20 years to 1999. We're going to we're going to go with Prince and party like it's 1999, but okay. you look at look at that session. It was the first year of a term also, so it's a pretty an- analogous. Okay. Uh, fewer than 800 total bills in the Senate that year, and they only got to about 1200 bills in the House. So it's always been a big thing, but we're sort of operating at maybe half again capacity of what the legislature used to just you know, just the number of bills being introduced and so forth and this year we're not doing individual bond bills right, either so right. so that actually there you know it's understating um you know it's not even apples to apples on that front so it's, it's sort of <laughs> crazy i mean and it puts a lot of pressure on these committees because there are so many bills now that they have to get out if they want to move them before crossover we've talked right. about crossover that's it's coming up you know so you're seeing now bills, you know, 18 bills a day being heard in certain committees. And, right. you know, that and means here. that you're in committee till 8 o'clock. Right. And then it's, it's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we do this all the time. We'll have a panel of professional people from county government. You know, we got the recycling managers from three different counties. Right. We're going to be on a panel. And, oh, the, the, you know, the committee's here in 15 bills and yours is going to be number 12. So you sit in the hallway and then it's 630 by the time your bill gets you know, called for its 1 o'clock hearing. Yeah, that's the first question. Oh, the, right. bill, the bill hearing's at 1, so I I'll get back to Frederick at three, right? right. And it's like, it's like, well, you know, sometimes, sometimes right. you're bill number one, sometimes you're bill number 14. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's, it can be frustrating. You know, you get to the end of that long day and legislators are human beings too. So, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to endure those long days and so forth. But then your ability to have a lengthy substantive conversation at the bill hearing at six o'clock or seven o'clock or later is really diminished. Right. And so then, you know, by then you've been there for six hours and you get up and you talk for 45 seconds and you say, I've submitted my written testimony. I hope you can read it. And please, you know, please put the amendment on this bill. Right. Please. Kind of just, you're done. You're done. <laughs> right. All right. That is interesting. So a lot of bills, more coming in. We'll keep you updated there. But until next week, Michael and Kevin signing off. We all hope you have a great day. If you like the podcast, please do us a favor. Subscribe, share it with your friends. It really helps us get the message out. Michael and Kevin signing off. We'll talk to you next week. 